Warren Buffett, BlackRock, and other institutional players dominate investments in commercial aviation. Why? Because it's one of the most profitable and predictable alternative assets that exists. And it's not tied to other markets such as real estate and the stock market. Is it safe? Well, imagine triple net leases to the likes of American Airlines and British Airways. Income is contractual and guaranteed by some of the biggest named airlines in the world. That's why this kind of investment was never available to the ordinary accredited investor. That is until now. Visit accesswealthaviation.com and check it out for yourself. Invest in an institutional team with over 200 plus years of combined investment experience in the aviation sector. Conservative investing with double digit returns and tax advantages. That's accesswealthaviation.com. Accesswealthaviation.com. You are listening to the Wealth Formula Podcast with Buck Joffrey. Get ready to change your life. Welcome, everybody. This is Buck Joffrey with the Wealth Formula Podcast. And today I would like to start out by reminding you of a couple of things. I'd like to remind you that there is lots of resources available, ready and waiting for you on wealthformula.com, including a copy of my book, Seven Secrets of Eternal Wealth. You can get the download. And uh, you can also get a copy of George Newberry's book, Burn Zones Now. Um, you can get that, and he'll actually send that to your door if you go to wealthformula.com. And also, I want to remind you of my course and private community called Your Roadmap to Real Wealth. And this is the private Wealth Formula Network. Okay, there's a course where you basically get instructed by some of the smartest people around my private network, guys like the real estate guys, guys like uh, Tom Wheelwright and Ken McElroy and Christian Allen and Dean Graziosi. Guys, you know, these are very, very high-quality, smart people. Kevin Day, talk about a smart guy. Um, and on top of that, you get access to the course uh, of course, you get the course. Then you also get the private community, which includes a private Facebook group, bi-weekly mastermind calls with topics. We do book clubs. We get people on there. And some exclusive material, some very cool stuff coming up. All of that you can check out at wellformularoadmap.com. Now, let's go back in time when I first started this podcast I uh, I go back in some of those shows and I'm kind of afraid to listen to them frankly because I don't know what I was telling people but um, it's not like it was bad advice but I'm always shocked at how my opinions have changed over um, just a couple of years and uh, you know because when I first started Wealth Formula podcast and this was actually a few years back and there was a big hiatus for about a year or so in between the first few episodes when I realized nobody was listening and didn't really understand why I was doing it, so I stopped. But um, anyway, I was a lot less sophisticated uh, back then than I am now, um, and I suspect in two or three years from now, I'll say the same thing about myself now. It just, you know, anybody who thinks they know it all, um, <laughs> they don't know anything. That's That's what I've learned at, at uh, age 45. Now, um, when I listened back to those initial podcasts, so I got to tell you, I was being overly pessimistic about the economy. And, uh, 
you know, I was listening to other podcasts and I was listening and reading other books and things like that in the same circle, right? In the same space. And so all I was doing was regurgitating all the ideas that were coming in from the same old space. And I know I've talked about this before, but this is really important. Um, I don't mean to be vulgar, but let's just say, you know, it's it's like pissing in a circle, right? I mean, that's what it is. It's like people telling everybody else the same thing and not learning anything uh, outside of that circle. It's just not very useful. But anyway, that was a lot of kind of my early stuff. Um, the other thing was that um, that I was interviewing people that, you know, not that, that they were bad people or that there were bad offerings, but my focus was on, hey, you know, that sounds cool and different and people need to know about that they can invest in that kind of thing. So let's interview them. And it's not like those things were necessarily bad. I mean, uh, you know, the problem is that I didn't do much due diligence on those offerings because I didn't really consider myself as promoting them. I was just, you know, talking to people and learning about these things because I thought they were interesting. Um, you know, since then, um, I, I've gotten smarter, like I said, and we all do as we get older, our prefrontal cortex continues to develop into our forties. And certainly mine seemed to do a lot in the last five years. <laughs> so I must be a little slow learner, but I've gotten a lot smarter. I've expanded my own network, uh, of people around me, which is part of it. I think, you know, again, going back to the idea of, you know, just getting the same information from the same circle. Um, and, and in doing that, I've gotten very different perspectives from, uh, from those who I started out following. Um, now furthermore, I'm a lot more selective about who I will have on the show as a guest. You see, uh, and, and I'm sure those of you have been with me, uh, if you've been listening to this show for over a year, you, you've seen the difference, right? What I didn't really er- realize early on was that, um, that a lot of my listeners were seeing uh, and hearing interviews that I was doing uh, with individuals uh, in uh, groups or whatever, funds, and thinking that this was a, um, and interpreting that as a stamp of approval uh, for the offerings that were were there. Uh, That, of course, was not necessarily the case. And certainly, I have invested with a a few people uh, that were on relatively early in the show, uh, but highlighting a quote-unquote good investment was never my intent. All I was trying to do was to educate uh, on things that people might not know about. So when I figured that out, I mostly stopped interviewing people who were really out there raising capital, um, and that was really their primary perspective, and that's really what they offered the world. Um, and that that's because I didn't want the appearance of an endorsement, especially especially if I did not have one to offer. So instead, most of the shows we do now tend to feature economists uh, and financial strategy types, you know, the brand names, uh, thought leaders, um, like, you know, we've got a bunch of New York Times best-selling authors, and miscellaneous topics that I think, you know, looking at you as uh, the individual um, I've come to know over uh, the past couple of years just through uh, the personality of this show, 
I believe it will be interesting and useful and beneficial to your life to hear. A good example of that was, for example, the Behavior Suticals, um, you know, the Trust Fund Rat Show, which I thought was just fascinating and was relevant to me as a uh, retired surgeon. Um, and also, I know there's a, a number of you out there who are, you know, who have practices or in the medical field or do things with your hands, and you can kind of relate to that. Um, and for those of you who don't, you could also relate to that too and say maybe you need something like that in your life, right? I mean, that. So I'm trying to create something that's actually beneficial and enriching your life, not just um, uh, that just seems to try to be selling you things because that's not my intent with this show. Um, now, this, <clears throat> this specific investment talk, because there is that, happens uh, for those who opt in uh, to for that kind of talk. And it's called the in- Investor Club. And you can go to wealthformula.com, and if you are an accredited investor, uh, you can sign up for that club. Now, that's where we really get into the nitty-gritty, and we really start talking about offerings, etc., for the most part, um, things that I'm doing. Now, if I do have someone on the show, on Wealth Formula Podcast proper, this show that you're listening to now, um, and they happen to be raising capital, it, it's typically someone or something special. That's what I'll tell you. Again, that doesn't mean I'm necessarily investing with them, but the interview will have more value to it just than basically a sales piece on why you should invest in a given fund. Believe me, I know this happens in this space. I get bombarded with these types of offers every day from people via email, and it's just um, not something I'm particularly interested in. I think they're If you have an interest in knowing what I am doing, what I'm interested in, what I'm investing in, and you're an accredited investor, you can do that by Investor Club, but it does not need to happen here on Wealth Formula Podcast. Now, um, that said, George Newberry and American Homeowner Preservation, uh, they raised capital. They've raised capital, and and, uh, George was one of my first guests ever on Wealth Formula Podcast. The funny thing is, he had no idea that when he first came on the show, there was probably about 20 people listening, and and most of them were, you know, like my friends or family or something like that. Um, And so he came on. I mean, he's been on uh, three times previous to today. Uh, And over that time, obviously, the show has grown substantially. Um, But anyway, when I first met him, he had this business, and he still has this business that is called American Home Preservation, um, and I thought it was the coolest thing ever, and I had business envy. Um, I also think of George as somebody who uh, I have a kindred spirit with. He's a uh, bootstrap serial entrepreneur, uh, much uh, the way I identify myself as. Um, anyway, he had this business, and I had business envy, and I just thought he was a great guy, and I had to tell everyone about him. I had to tell everyone about his fund. Um, this was before uh, George was ever a sponsor. That happened much, much later. George's show and or George's fund, American Homeowner Homeowner Preservation, became uh, a sponsor over the years. And um, you know, about a half million downloads later, uh, and uh, George's show, George's um, George's fund became so big it became a multi million dollar fund. 
a lot of wealth formula money in there, by the way, because, uh, you know, I mean, it, it speaks for itself. I don't have to plug it very much. Uh, but George grew this business, this very successful business into something that he's an entrepreneur understood that he needed to hand over to a CEO because us bootstrap entrepreneurs sometimes don't make great CEOs. Um, I think I probably follow, fall into that as, as well. Now, uh, as I said, many of you have invested in his last multi-million dollar fund, including myself, and the next fund is about to launch. So we're going to talk about that. Um, but we're also going to talk a lot about this non-performing note industry in general. Uh, you know, I had, uh, the opportunity, I asked George if I could go to Chicago and shoot a documentary on, on, on buying notes because I wanted to learn this. And I also wanted to try to document this for all of you out there. So this is probably still about six months or more away from release, but, um, but it, they were kind enough. George, uh, George's team there with uh, Deanne O'Donovan, his CEO, who will also be on the show today, to uh, to help us learn about this process and about notes in general. So that's going to be super exciting. That's going to be for free. I'm not selling it to you or anything, but I just we have to get done with it. Um, so anyway, we're going to talk about that, what I learned from there. We're going to talk about the fund. We're going to talk about investing in uh, notes by yourself and what my experience was throughout that process. It'll be a fun show. And so make sure that you tune in uh, when we come back. We'll have George and Dion on. Uh, this will be number four for George. What do the Rothschilds, the Romneys, and the billionaire hedge fund managers know that you don't about growing and protecting wealth? As you might imagine, the wealthy have a few tricks up their sleeves. One strategy allows you to grow wealth tax-free at a compounding rate with no volatility. It protects your money from creditors and lawsuits, and it lets you invest the same money in two different places at the same time. How about that for amplifying wealth? To learn more, go to WealthFormulaBanking.com. Again, that's WealthFormulaBanking.com. Self-storage is a necessary evil. It's where you keep your stuff and forget about it. No wonder this stuff is so profitable and recession resistant. The Wealth Formula community, well, we've benefited from that. We've made lots of money in this space with Reliant Real Estate, one of the largest self-storage companies in the country. With an average investor internal rate of return of almost 34%, with hold times just over three and a half years, these guys know what the meaning of velocity of money is. If you're an accredited investor, make sure to check out what they're up to right now at ReliantFund4.com. Again, that's ReliantFund4.com. Welcome back to the show, everyone. Today, my guests on Wealth Formula Podcaster, George Newberry, founder and chairman of American Homeowner Preservation. Now, actually, it's uh, AHP Servicing, right? And his uh, new CEO, Deanne O'Donovan. Uh, George and Deanne, welcome to Wealth Formula Podcast. And George, welcome back. Number four. <laughs> Thanks, Buck. Thanks for having us. <laughs> I know number four. I'm really excited. I, I think I'm 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 breaking records. Here. I think you are. I think um, you're actually two ahead of the next person. Oh, that's well. Yeah. Let's keep it that way. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Sounds good. So, um, George, let's start with you. Um, so, lots happened at HP. Um, now AHP servicing, for example, a change in name. 
since your last appearance on the show. Tell us about how, um, you know, how that last fund that we, you know, a number of listeners that we have, how did it end? How is it doing? And, and ultimately how you decided to sort of, um, you know, transition into the new fund and bring on Deanne and all that story. If you can talk, sure. fill in the gaps there. Sure. That, well, that's a look, uh, a lot of questions in one. So let yeah. me try and uh, try and get them all. So uh, the old fund, it's, it's not done. It's still going. Uh, we've, we've, we close to new investments. So the existing fund for maybe your listeners that aren't familiar with it is American homeowner preservation, 2015 a plus. And we launched that in June of 2016 and it ended. We stopped taking new investments in May of this year, 2018. However, we're still, that money is still out there and we're still, it's invested in a lot of mortgages in fact, we still are, I believe, still investing some of it. And as more comes in, to the extent there's extra, we'll continue to, to, to invest in that fund. So that fund will be around for five plus years. Um, so actually, basically five years from the last uh, investment. So roughly five years from uh, May 2018 is the projected uh, end of that fund. So there's still a lot to go in that one. And How, uh, how does really that, well. George, how does that how does I'm curious how the end of that fund how does how do you end something like that do you just sell sure. off the assets or what, what do you do yeah to the extent we needed to we would sell off uh assets you know our expectation is more or less in the third year or two two to uh when we see that there's two years left to go mm-hmm. uh you know we'll we'll take a um take an assessment of what's left and uh decide to um, work on selling it, uh, decide to, you know, wh- whatever is appropriate. But bear in mind, throughout this period over the next few years, we'll continue to sell loans, loans, REOs will be sold. So more money comes into the fund from revenues, which can then be reinvested. So, but there's a point at which that'll stop. And I imagine that's in the last 24 to 18 months. And then we're going to start, instead of reinvesting that money, start returning it to investors. Got it. At least that's, that's, the, uh, that's the current plan. So the fun ends and you say, well, gosh, uh, this thing was big uh, and it's, you know, I'm a, I'm a great entrepreneur, but if I want to sort of take the business to the next level, maybe I need somebody uh, to help me do that. So the decision at that point uh, for entrepreneurs in, in, in the audience, you know that decision where you start to realize your own limitations. And that's kind of what happened, right, with uh, Dan? A- absolutely. Uh, so about a year ago, uh, I, we were doing very well. We had grown, uh, grown a great deal though. And, and my challenge was that as the company grew, even though we had a, you know, close to 20 employees, more and more work was, was, was coming on my shoulders. I wasn't great at, 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 uh, at delegating at managing my team. I think a lot of entrepreneurs kind of suffer mm-hmm. from that. They, yeah. it's, it's tough to give up control. And, uh, at that point, I decided, and I actually read an article uh, from a friend of mine who had same thing, uh, entrepreneur, and just his business was growing, and he just didn't feel that he was the one f- to grow it. And uh, so he, in fact, he said he was kind of losing control. And I said, well, that was that was almost me. I, it was like if I didn't work extraordinary hours, 70 to 80 hours a week, I could not keep control of this thing. And uh so he hired a CEO and I decided, well, that's what I want to do. And actually I contacted him and, and I decided to embark on this search uh, for a CEO. And, and uh, the first candidate for the position was Deanne. And although I did look at a few others because I had to, I had to 
see what else was out there. Dan was, was the best candidate and uh, she came on board and she has some of the qualities that I lack. She's, she's great at building, managing and getting the best out of large teams. And she has a history of doing that. And so it was exactly what AHP needed in order to grow. And we see a huge opportunity, not just in what we've historically been doing, which is buying non-performing mortgages and, uh, and resolving them um, typically with, with uh, borrower-friendly consensual re resolutions, which is historically what we've done, but also in servicing. Uh, for years, we had to just take a step back. Just about every mor mortgage holder needs to utilize a, a mortgage servicer that is licensed in the state where yeah. the property is located. And we're going to get into that a little bit um, because uh, that's one of the, the major transitions as you become a servicing company. But we're going to get, get into that uh, in more detail in a bit when we started sure. back up because I think we want to talk a little bit about what exactly this whole note business is about. But Dan, tell us a little bit about your background. I know you have a sore throat, so we're not going to push you too hard here. <laughs> Um, but uh, tell us a little bit about your background because you've been doing, I mean, you've been in the note space for a while with some larger institutions. Tell us a little bit about the decision to come uh, join and take, uh, take, I guess, uh, the helm of, of AHP servicing. Yeah, so my pleasure. I'm pleased to be here with both of you today. And um, I would also say I think George has done a good job learning how to give up control. So it's been a very smooth transition, I think, from the two of us, which has been terrific. And in terms of my background, um, I initially started in commercial real estate, moved into the residential space during the last recession, where I set up a team to work through a large portfolio of non-performing loans, and also spent a number of years as an executive with the financial services company. So that experience was really perfect for AHP servicing. I actually set up a servicing company. I set up a default loan servicing company. <coughs> Excuse me. And I set up um, all of the teams and the infrastructures related to the sort of corporate needs as we look at putting a team in place that can scale and grow. So, you know, George mentioned that I was the first person he talked to, and we got to know each other over a course of months. And the more we talked, the more evident it was that it was a great cultural fit, it was a great skill set fit, and that I think we're very complementary. Um, and together, you know, just what we've accomplished this year is really remarkable. So we're excited about the next offering and where we take the servicing business. So um, guys, I want to back up a little bit because, you know, George has been on the show now. This is again, number four. And um, I always had sort of a little bit of an idea of what this whole notes business was about. And there's some people who probably started listening to um, well formula podcasts and have not heard George or HP but even even in the last few shows, I, I knew a lot less about notes in general than I do now, which is still, you know, pretty rudimentary compared to where anybody who's really buying notes needs to be. And um, so what I'd like to do, if it's OK with you guys, is kind of back up. And for people who are listening, saying, all right, notes, what do you mean notes? What is this all about? Let's talk a little bit about um you know, I I had the opportunity not only to you know to 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 learn a little bit and read a bit, but also to come to the HP servicing headquarters there in Chicago, and learn some basics. So let's go over some of that. So first of all, 
George, maybe since you 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 don't have a sore throat right now, I'm going to drill you on this, right? So t- tell me a little bit about what exactly are we talking about when we're talking about the notes business? Sure. So uh, notes, typically in, in the context we use it, they're, there's a promissory note, which is secured by a mortgage or a deed of trust on real estate. It could be a house, could be vacant land, could be a commercial building. Uh, and so those notes are typically, you know, most people think, hey, well, I got my loan through Bank of America and, you know, I own a, owe a loan to Bank of America. But as many people know, these mortgages get transferred regularly. So that Bank of America loan could be transferred to Citibank, to Wells Fargo or whoever. Uh, and that's very, very typical between banks, between hedge funds and, and other financial institutions and lenders. Um but the notes, so that's just in general, it's, it's, you know, if you own a house, most, the majority of, of um, real estate owners in this country have a mortgage on their property. And that's what these notes are. They're these, these mortgages um, on these properties. Now, what we deal with is when the people are unable to pay, they fall behind, they stop paying, and maybe they're at risk of foreclosure. Some of those bigger banks and lending institutions don't want to deal with those loans uh, for any extended period. So they'll sell those loans. And uh, there's a, a network of buyers across the country, large and small, who buy these loans. And that's what we are. HP is, is one of those buyers. So basically a note is, I mean, for, for, for you know, for simplicity, it's a mortgage, right? You're buying, uh, you're buying somebody's debt. You're buying uh, that kind of thing. And there, uh, and as you mentioned, AHP Servicing is um, an AHP homeowner or American homeowner preservation. Before this, the specialty's really been in this uh, non-performing note space, which means people who are delinquent in their payments. But there's more to notes than just non-performing notes. So maybe we can break that down. Um, there's really more than that, right? There's the performing notes. And then there's what we call re-performing notes and then non-performing. Can you talk a little bit about, you know, the differences between those and maybe some of the risk reward profile um, uh, of investing in different kinds of notes like that? Sure. So a performing note, you know, today they'd be originated, let's say, at 5%. And there's a demand from banks and other institutions to buy those loans and and they they're happy with a yield of five percent. Maybe the originator gets to keep the keep the origination fee, maybe some servicing. Uh, but people are buying those loans and expecting returns in the low to mid single digits. Uh, and and the reason they're willing to do that is because those loans typically have a history or the qualifications that that make it likely that they'll the holder of that note will continue to receive a regular. Uh, repayment. So on a monthly basis, they'll likely receive whatever the scheduled payment is for an extended period of time. And that is uh, why those typically yield, you know, modest, uh, modest returns. Uh, you know, re-performing loans are loans where the families, the, the homeowners uh, fell behind for whatever reason, and then they were able to modify the loan. And uh, then they've started paying. And now there's a history of maybe six months of on-time repayments, 12 months of on-time repayments. And when that happens, then oftentimes there's a market uh, of re-performing note buyers who are willing to take uh, a higher yield than a performing. Um, and maybe that yield is anywhere from eight to 12%, um, sometimes even a little bit, a little bit higher, uh, maybe sometimes a little bit lower. And then there's non-performing loans. These are loans where people you know, maybe started out paying 
uh, but at some point they fell into trouble and, and have not been able to uh, catch up and they're behind on payments. They could be behind on payments six, six months or six years. And so those loans, um, you know, people are going to expect to get higher yields, you know, 12% on up to 20% or more in some cases uh, is what uh, most investors would, would hope to yield on that. You know, it, it's interesting. So it's, it's a, I mean, it's classic sort of, you know, high risk, higher risk, higher reward. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's also a couple other elements that I think are interesting and it leads to sort of your, um, your historical business model. There's multiple business models here too in the notes industry. I mean, you, mm-hmm. you, you want to talk a little bit about the different approaches, uh, maybe two or three different sort of common approaches that investors take uh, to, um, you know, buying notes? I mean, they're, it really depends on their strategy. They're going to be looking for, it's whether they're looking for cash flow, they're looking for, um, you know, some kind of uh, shorter term gains, yeah. uh, you know, to buy it and then it becomes an REO and then they sell it, buy it becomes right. an REO, they fix it up, they sell it. Um, there's, um, you know, modifications uh, that, you know, that's primarily, HP has learned that the best way to approach homeowners who are delinquent on their payments is to offer them uh, solutions and let them choose. And whether that's, hey, I want to stay in the home with a modification. I don't want to stay in the home. We'll pay them cash for it in lieu, or they do a lump sum settlement. And by approaching them with those options has worked really, really well in our history. Yeah, I think kind of what I was getting at was one of the things that I noticed is there's literally people out there who are more interested in the asset necessarily than mm. they are in cash flow. So there really is different ways to approach it. Mm-hmm. There's some confusion out there when you talk about the notes business. Uh, for example, you know, you have, I think some people I've met now who target um, properties w- that are that no one lives in. So if no one's living there, of course, they're not really trying to you know, trying to figure out how to keep them in the house. So they're really targeting the asset and seeing if they can get a discount. So that's one approach. Mm-hmm. And then, as you mentioned, um, AHP's approach, and probably, you know, the most people that I've met, is to try to keep somebody in the house. And the first idea is, as you said, to, um, you know, to potentially renegotiate debt, um, saying, um, you know, if you can... Uh, pay a little bit less, and I bought this at a discount, so I'll still make money here, but I'll I'll lower your mortgage or lower your interest rate or whatever. Or you pay them, uh, pay them some money to basically vacate the property and make it easy on everybody to prevent the third option, which you don't really want generally in this model, which is foreclosure. Right? Is that typically sort of the uh, the three uh, routes along the way? That's a fair assessment. Okay. Absolutely. <laughs> do, you, do you have anything to add to that? No, I think that Buck did a good job summarizing that. You know, we're socially responsible, so we want to keep people in the home, but there are investors who are looking at the underlying asset. Dan, do you want to talk a little bit about, because there's also some other terminology I'd like to get to, if, if you don't mind. Um, and again, you know, it's because a little bit of knowledge is dangerous, and now I have a little bit of knowledge. Um good. What's the difference in, um, well, you, so there are people who buy first liens and second liens and uh, things like that. And uh, why would somebody, assuming that, um, you know, a property, you know, first lien means that you are entitled 
uh, to whatever money is due first, why would you even get into the second lien business? What what are people doing there? Because you can buy a first lien, you can buy a second lien. Can you talk a little bit about that? Because I know you guys don't do it, but I, I just want to create sort of a holistic educational thing here. Sure. So you're right. We focus on buying the first lien. There are some investors out there who specialize in second liens. And so if you're buying a second lien, you're typically buying that at a very steep discount. And then you're going to want to understand what's taking place with the first lien, right? So you could buy that second lien for pennies on the dollar, hoping that when that property goes through foreclosure, um, you're going to get paid off at a discount. So you're going to make some kind of quick money so they can clean that up. Um, other people might buy a second lien also having an interest in the underlying real estate so they could purchase that second lien for a close on the second lien and kind of step into the shoes and keep that first lien paying if they wanted to. So those are a couple of the reasons, George, anything else you'd like to add to that? No, I think you've, I think you've covered them well. I mean, I guess the other part is almost nuisance when you do buy them for pennies on the dollars and let's say you're hoping that the family maybe does a short sale, you could probably you know, get everyone to agree to pay you some token amount. You may, you may owe, they may owe you 50,000. Uh, you may have bought the loan for a thousand. You may be able to get 5,000 out of a short sale. That That's probably the only other uh, um, situation I can think of. Sounds a little uh, bit more speculative in, in general. Oh, it's definitely speculative. Yeah. Anyway, yeah. It's... So um, let's talk a little bit about the, uh, the, you know, the note buying framework here, because I think, you know, we've never really approached this as, hey, um, you know, you have an option here. You can uh, you can buy your own notes. We can or you can invest in a fund. But since you're a servicing company now, um, you know, that is something that you can actually help people with. So um, first of all, if you're interested in exploring the idea of buying performing or reperforming or non-performing notes, where do you buy them? As an individual, not I mean, I we're retail investors typically, right? right? So where do you get them if you're not a hedge fund or AHB servicing? So really through kind of networking and going to events and finding other people who work in this space, um, we're an active buyer and seller. So over the years, we've developed a network of trading partners. We also keep a database of people who are interested in buying. So when we're selling loans, we may go through a broker or we may sell directly through our network. Um, and, and it really is, I would say, very much a relationship business. Got it. And um, so so once you once you've got some uh, once you got some opportunities to look at, there's typically something called uh, that I've learned to be called a tape. And then a tape basically is giving you a bunch of information uh, about the property. Um, you know, it might give you some. Uh, some values in terms of what the property's, uh, you know, how much is owed on it. It might give you a value of the property itself, et cetera. Um, talk a little bit about, I guess, in very broad terms again, what is that initial process like for someone who's interested in investing in notes? What are they doing? They're looking at, they're looking at the tape. What kinds of things are they looking at? Sure. So they're looking at the payment history, principal balance, what the property is worth, um, if it's severely delinquent, whether foreclosure has started, how close to foreclosure completion they are, market area, values, um, tax liens, other liens, um, so that you can really get a sense of what's the history of the loan, what's the likely trajectory of the loan, 
and what do I think a, a fair value is based on what I'm going to need to do to either get that loan reperforming or find another solution. And that's really just the sort of the first step. And at that point, you're kind of already making an offer, right? Based on that tape, which I, I found kind of interesting is, you know, even before you really get into the uh, due diligence and everything else, you make an offer and maybe you go back and forth with, uh, uh, you know, you get something initially accepted and then you start the due diligence process. What does that due diligence process looks look like? And, you know, who does that? Do you do it yourself? Do you outsource it? How, how does that work? So we do it ourselves. Um, a lot of smaller investors would outsource it to third parties because they wouldn't have the size or the skill to develop their own team. We've developed an amazing team in-house. So we typically do uh, the due diligence review itself in-house, but we do rely on third-party vendor partners for things like taxes, title, um, which we typically order. And then we also order, uh, we use a broker's price opinion, which is commonly referred to as a VPO. Other people might use online values or even a full appraisal. And so we're also then looking at the collateral file and the history of how it's changed hands. We put all of those things together and then we go back and look at what our initial bid is, what we learned through that due diligence process, and we adjust our bid to come up with the final bid that we're willing to pay, keeping in mind our model and our strategy for the portfolio. What I found fascinating about this in, in, in being out there was that it's a laborious process for each individual note. And um, and so it's, it's, it's interesting to, when you're buying these things in, you know, in volume, the amount of work that must go into that. I mean, I know you guys do it individually because I saw it, but I mean, are there some, just some funds that are just buying in volume and saying, Hey, some of these are going to work and some of them aren't, or is that. I'm sure that there are some larger institutional players who are buying in volume, but you're right. Um, we take a look at every loan that we buy. It is a laborious process. It's definitely a situation where the devil is in the details but, you know, we, we will buy things that have um, title issues that need to be cured and other kind of unique situations. But during our due diligence process, we get reasonably comfortable that that's something that we can find a solution for. So the due diligence process is done. And then you may, in some cases, go back and renegotiate a price if there's something that's totally un, un, uh, unexpected. And it seems to at least from what I found, it seems relatively uh, common <laughs> that, yeah. that that happens. It is. And ultimately, say you, you get to an agreement and you buy a note. Now, this goes back to what George was talking about earlier. Then, if you get to that point and you buy a note, you have to have a servicer, right? And that's something that, you know, I think is kind of a foreign concept because— to, to probably to most people who don't know this area. So the idea being that you can't go and collect money yourself, right? So what t talk a little bit about the servicing business and what's involved with that and why ultimately you started AHP Servicing. Sure. So I'm going to talk about what a servicer is, and then I'll turn it over to George to talk about why he made the decision that uh, we should start a servicer before I joined the company. So... If you've ever had a mortgage, the servicer is the company that sends you your monthly statement. They process your monthly payment that you turn in. If you've escrowed for taxes and insurance, 
they make sure that they receive those payments and pay your insurance and your taxes timely for you on the property. So at a very basic level on a performing loan, that's what the servicer does. The non-performing loans, which is where we're really a specialty servicer, primarily for non-performing loans, a lot of other things go along with that. So outreach to the borrower to make collection uh, arrangements, to develop payment plans. As George noted earlier, we try to give the borrower as many opportunities as possible to have a hand in how they settle that loan. So it could be modifying the loan to make the payments more affordable. It could be a discounted payoff. If they've already vacated the property, if they would like to, we'll take a deed in lieu of foreclosure where we can. So that's where you get into kind of what I would call the secret sauce of AHP servicing. We've got a long history of doing this with borrowers. And so it made sense to take our portfolio in-house first of all, so we can do it for ourselves and then open the doors to third-party investors um, like us and our trading partners who really want that attention to detail. Yeah, George. So what, um, tell me about, because I remember you telling me about the pain of this uh, before you ever started this, right? I mean, this was sort of a major pain point as an entrepreneur, a pain point generally means there's a business there, right? Is that basically what you saw? Very much so. Yeah, you'd want to. I mean, we got frustrated. We went. We probably went through seven or eight servicers in our history, uh, and we were never. They never met expectations. Uh, and uh, you know, we have this. You know, we really want to call the homeowners ourselves. I mean, that's what probably anyone who on your show will think. Well, I own the loan. I'll just call them, and you can't. Uh, you need to go through a, someone who's licensed in that state um, and follows all the proper protocols. And uh, so that was always a source of frustration. We tried to do the best we could by kind of micromanaging the uh, the servicers, but that created uh, some friction. But what was what was most frustrating is they just weren't doing a very good job. But we were also paying them a lot of money. We owned a lot of loans, so the actual I mean, we were paying tens of thousands, and then it crept over a hundred thousand per month to third party servicers to do this work, and they weren't doing it very well. And they weren't even trying to really improve much. So we thought, well, here's the opportunity. The, the, the opportunity is twofold. One is most of the servicers that we've worked with, the performance could be improved. Uh, and then the other part is, you know, the compliance. These servicers weren't not only having trouble, I think, sometimes servicing or serving their investor clients and the homeowner and the borrowers, but also there's regulatory issues or regulatory concerns which are state agencies and the CFPB that oversee servicers. And, you know, in our instance, we had to go to each state in order to get licensed or get an exemption, get confirmation that we're exempt from licensing for whatever reason in that state. And that's a process that's still ongoing, but um, there's regulatory scrutiny. And if you make a mistake, the fines can be extraordinary in the millions of dollars. So as a result of um, this, this, uh, you know, the, these challenges in the market, I think a lot of concerns about compliance, there was already some consolidation going on amongst the different servicers. But when you see people kind of exiting from the market, uh, then we saw the opportunity, hey, we could do this for our loans and do it for other, other people's loans and create a, a and that, that created the opportunity. But I think, you know, it's great that, uh, you know, what, when I first talked to Deanna, one of the things that came across early on is that as she built the servicer at her, at her, in her prior, um, prior position, she had a uh, little or no, I believe it was actually no, but I'll have her confirm it. Uh, no regulatory, um, 
issues, uh, which is really remarkable in this in this uh, environment because it's a very um, there's a great deal of regulatory scrutiny in this uh, on servicers right now in today's um, in this era. And, and Dan, was it was it zero? Yeah, we had zero yeah. audit findings for multiple years, and we were audited by the OCC and uh, the FDIC and a whole host of very large regulatory agencies. And and George is correct that that um, belief and that attitude of regulatory compliance is hugely important for the servicer as well as for their clients. But it also kind of gets to that goal of trying to just do the right thing, right? So will you be, um, so now you have a servicing company, um, will you be selling, selling notes to retail investors as well? Yes. So we already do. Um, we do it on a, you know, kind of small basis, but we have a, a couple of avenues that we sell loans through and we'll continue to do that. And uh, we think that actually is a benefit to us as a servicer as well, because we understand that you're not looking to just necessarily pull the loan and ride it through a foreclosure process two or three years, you're looking for a quick consensual solution to that past due status so you can make money off that loan and get it paying or um, settle it and then reinvest those funds. So are, are the, the, the loans that you're typically going to be selling, well, I guess there's a two-part question. Are they typically going to be what we call the reperforming notes because you've gotten them to the point where they are now paying um, and so are they those kind? And then the second, um, well, answer, well, we ask, ask that first because I don't want to get it too complex. But is is that the kind of note that we're talking about when you're selling? Yeah, that's definitely in our sweet spot is to get it reperforming, season the reperforming, and then sell it as an RPL. Got it. And and how is there a platform right now? Is there a place right now, or do they, people just contact you and say, "Hey, I'm interested in buying some reperforming notes," or how how does that work? Yep. So they contact us. We'll put them in our database and um, we do quarterly loan sales. So we'll let them know when we have offerings available. And then sometimes we use brokers as well. So, yeah. Do you have something to add to that, George? Or No, okay. that's uh, that's I, I mean, the the process. I mean, I think you've touched on it, Buck. The process to get into this business for us when I first started was it was really the challenge was. Well, we decided we wanted to buy notes. We raised a little bit of money, but how do you buy the notes? And uh, so here, certainly building a relationship with AHP is one way to buy the notes, but it is in general a pretty opaque business and built, as Deanne mentioned, on relationships, uh, which is in this era, you know, you would think there'd be some more technology, which would, which would give greater transparency and maybe a, a, a more predictable uh, path of entry. Uh, for newer investors, but that just, it doesn't exist yet. Um, and hopefully it, 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 it will. But in the meantime, I think AHP can, uh, can certainly provide, especially a newer investor can provide an avenue. This, here's the other issue is a lot of the bigger hedge funds, um, bigger buyers, you know, you come in and say, Hey, yeah, you know, I'm a newer buyer. I want to buy three notes or five notes. And there's, you know, you know, they're going to, yeah, they're right. thinking, it's just not worth it. It's just yeah. not worth our time. Yeah, exactly. With AHP, you know, I think that it's, hey, we can sell you loans, but we'll also handle your servicing. So, um, you know, maybe that, so combine those two. And I think it makes sense for us to um, cater to smaller investors as well. Right. And that certainly helps with um, it, it, one thing that occurred to me, and this may seem really kind of basic, right, is that whenever you look at notes, right, when 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 I pictured the note business, the only thing that really came into my mind was what the yield would be once you put in a financial calculator and you find out what the yield is. 
But it's not just the yield. It's actually, okay, well, then somebody might pay off that loan early, and then that bumps up your yield quite a bit, right? So so I, the reason I bring that up is that there's there's two things that kind of come up here. One is, well, how does that help AHP to sell a note? Are they just selling the... Are they just selling the lousy ones? No, they're selling them because that actually helps them improve their cash flow. And then ultimately for you, if you want to hold a cash flowing asset, you can buy something and then hopefully you'll hold it until there's some sort of bump at the end for you, right? I mean, that's, so it, it's kind of this symbiotic relationship. Yeah, that was a great summary. Yeah, See, I, there you go. I learned I, something from you guys, right? <laughs> I know. And it's yeah. tough to predict. I mean, I remember we sold one. The people had started paying again, uh, but we sold it. They owed, I mean, it was Ohio. I think they owed close to $100,000. Uh, we thought the property value was sixty, And this was a few years ago. I think we sold the reperforming loan for like thirty-five. Now, we had bought it for fifteen or something, so we made a great return. But we, had, it, we took a non-performing loan, made it reperforming. But then two or three months later, the people sold the house and they paid up the people that just paid 35 got $60,000. Yeah. Uh, so they made 25,000 plus picked up a few payments. Their yield was to the roof. I was saying, God, kind of wish I didn't sell it. <laughs> uh, but, yeah, but, the, right. uh, but to your point, it's, it's, it's fairly unpredictable because you really don't know what the, the homeowner may have modified, but they may want to eventually sell the property. They may refinance. You may get paid off early. And if you can capture that discount, you know, back in in a shorter period of time, it certainly it will potentially increase your yield significantly. And from HP's perspective, you know, if we can capture that gain, which now nowadays it's going to be much more modest than that. Um, but if we can capture that gain and, and roll the money, there's some advantages for us as well to keep our yields up. So let's let's roll into based on that. I mean, you just said something that nowadays, and so huh. suggesting that times have changed a little bit in the note um, uh, space in general. Can you talk a little bit? Obviously, you started AHP. Uh, you started the, you know, like I think it was two thousand nine, right? Two thousand eight. Two thousand eight. So, I mean, you picked a pretty good time to start this business. Um, how? I mean. So is it just a supply and demand thing that now you don't have as much yield? Is that is that what's going on? We'll talk a little bit about that. Yeah, and actually Dan's probably better equipped because she's the one yeah. uh, operating it right now. And today's environment is definitely tighter than when I than when we started. Sure. So, um, you know, overall, you're right. Supply is down a little bit because foreclosure rates are lower. Um, but we are starting to see a little bit of an uptick in some of the newer originations. And I think that's probably due in part to um, the easing of lending standards by the federal government. So I just saw a podcast, listened to a podcast earlier this week that said the average down payment now for new origination is 5%. So when you think about what that means for the next recession, fast forward a couple of years, we're going to have this new crop of borrowers who are underwater on their mortgages. So there is a little bit of a cyclical ebb and flow. Our business, I would say, is somewhat counter cyclical in the sense that or I should say um, maybe cycle resistant is a better term because you know even when times are good, there's still a lot of foreclosures that are hanging out there. So we are seeing more competition. We're seeing some competition from some institutional players who as a result of settlements with the federal government need to forgive a certain amount of mortgage debt. But in spite of that, we're still finding good deal flow 
you know, it really comes back to those relationships and being disciplined and making sure that you understand the product and that you're sticking to your model and knowing when you've got a good deal and you're maybe willing to extend that model a little bit because you've got a good return potential. Will you talk a little bit about cycle resistant? And it brings up something that, uh, that <clears throat> I, th I have thought about a little bit and it sounds to me like you've been, you know, you've been through, uh, you know, good times and bad with this. When you have, um, say you're buying non-performing or re-performing debt, um, and you're buying it in good times, is that, is that, are those notes, uh, statistically more difficult to, uh, you know, keep performing uh, once you get them performing, when there's uh, when you go from being in a in a in a good part of the cycle to recession. Yeah, so it's a great question. I'm not aware of any statistical data that's out there. I have looked for it. What I would say is, I think it just depends on how much cushion you're giving the borrower. So, you know, we're a socially responsible investment firm, and as a result, or I should say, we're a socially responsible offering. And as a result, we're not necessarily looking to kind of pull that last dollar out of the borrower. We're looking for a fast consensual solution that's going to allow them to keep paying. And I would say one of the things I was so impressed by when I was getting to know um, AHP before I joined is kind of looking at the before and after of the average borrower payment was pretty remarkable. Like it was evident that AHP was really living its mission and trying to set those borrowers up for success. And so it's really kind of the underwriting that goes into or the formula that goes into how do you modify that mortgage that I think is the biggest determinant of whether that borrower is going to keep paying in the next market cycle. I think the other thing that's critically important, and studies do show this, is whether once that borrower is back on their feet, they're saving money, right? Because um, unfortunately, a lot of Americans have zero savings. And that means that if they have a health event or something changes, they don't have any cushion. So making sure we're giving them payments that incentivize them to build equity and stay in the home, and then also allow them to start gaining that financial stability, I think is kind of the trifecta of the business. Got it. I think I'm hearing some Chicago in the background there or something. Right. <laughs> um, so uh, to the extent that, uh, you know, you know, part of part of your model, though, buying buying at less, you know, basically creating a better cushion for uh, for the home buyer or for for the uh, uh, for the people who are living in these houses, this has got to be affected by the competition and 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 driving down yield and all that. You only have so much wiggle room, right? Um, even even though you're mission based business, it's still tough to. You still have some numbers and some investors to keep happy as well. Absolutely. It's purpose plus profit. And so we're very disciplined in terms of making sure that we're making smart investments. Got it. So let's um, let's talk a little bit about the new fund. Um, what is it called? And and how, you know, we, you could tell us the features of it. it uh, from my understanding, it's pretty similar structurally to the first one maybe talk about you know any similarities or differences between that fund and the past fund and how it's set up sure so we're very excited about the next offering we should be launching any day we're just waiting on our final qualification from the sec so 
It will um, have a lot of similarities. It's a reggae offering. We're seeking to raise up to $50 million. We're open to both accredited and non-accredited investors. Um, you can invest with as little as $100. And that's kind of part of the sort of democratic underpinning, I would say, of the history of AHP that I really liked, is that it's another way that they're encouraging financial stability and financial literacy by making this open to non-accredited investors. Um, in terms of what's changed between the last offering and the next offering, um, the next offering will have a preferred targeted return up to 10% per year. Again, that's not a guaranteed return, it's a preferred return. Um, distributions are paid monthly. Um, still use best efforts to return principal within five years of the investor making the investment. If investors redeem early, um, the returns go down a little bit. So if they redeem in the first year, the return drops from 10% to 8%. If they redeem in the second year, it drops from 10% to 9%. And then after two years, it's that full 10% return. Um, in terms of the business model, you know, we were still focused on purchasing non-performing residential loans. Uh, we'll also use it for the servicing business. We're going to be growing the third-party servicing business. And then we'll be able to use the proceeds of that offering if we have opportunities to purchase mortgage servicing rights or to potentially acquire another servicer um, who's struggling or other kind of related things to the core businesses. Um, liquidity uh, was a major factor. I thought that was a differentiating factor for um, your last fund, which, in other words, uh, typically when you see a notes fund, you know, you, you have your money locked in there for, you know, at least two or three or more years. Um, but with your last fund, you, you know, you were able to, uh, you had some level of liquidity. Will that continue? How will that work? Yep. So we still offer with the next offering, we will offer best efforts liquidity. So there's no lockup period. And I agree with you. I think it's one of the things that really sets us apart. Um, we have provided some clarification in the next SEC offering in terms of how much we may redeem in any one year. So that'll be up to 25% of the fund in a given year. And the reason for that is we don't want to be in a position where we're um, you know, selling loans at an adverse time in the market, and then that's not good for the returns for the rest of the investors who stay in. So, just just for clarification, um, that that's that's a basically a uh, that's just kind of to protect the fund. So, if you, you as long as uh, presumably, if you have a certain amount of money in there, and times are fine, and not everybody's trying to sell at the same time, you could get a hundred percent of your investment back uh, upon request. Is that right or am I missing? Nope, that's right. Yeah. Um, the, the only caveat that I would make since we're having this conversation before we have SEC qualification is there may be some slight changes if they come back with any final comments. So I would just ask any of your um, listeners who are thinking about investing to make sure they actually review that final offering memo once yeah. it's approved. Yeah. We'll certainly get we'll, we'll get any clarification out to people uh, ahead of time as well because I know a lot of people uh, invest in the fund last time or would probably be have an interest in knowing if there's any differences beyond that. Right. Um, anything else we need to know about the the fund, George, the new one? Uh, I mean, here here's the way I see this is from the standpoint of what you're offering now, which I think is really interesting, you're saying, hey, if you want to go out and do this on your own, um, 
you know, he, we're going to give you some tools to do this. The, the, the two, I think from the buyer standpoint, uh, the most difficult things are probably due diligence, which, you know, that's the part you're going to have to learn. I mean, that's the part where I'm trying to, you know, find time to learn myself. But the other part is finding a good servicing company. Now, you're providing that second component, and so you're giving people the tools to do that. Now, if they don't have the time or they're not interested, you can still get exposure to the pros, right, and say, all right, I'm, I'm good with 10%, and that's basically what you've created is an option either or or, you know, or both, right? So... Is there anything else you want to add to that, George? It sounds like a pretty interesting approach. No, it makes it. I mean, I think your description is is very accurate, and it gives somebody who invests in a fund they get regular reports, they uh, can see our SEC filings, and it's something where they can kind of follow us and, and get to know the business. And if they decided, hey, I want to, I want to do this on my own, um, that's great. Uh, you know, in the, in the past, they'd buy a loan and they'd have to find a servicer who would take, you know, it's maybe a, a handful of loan, por- a small portfolio. And then, you know, they're s- dealing with any servicing, uh, servicing challenges uh, on their own here. I think we can, um, you know, we'll be there as a, as a constant resource uh, for them as they hopefully grow their portfolio. I mean, one of the things when we first started, I think we bought 11 loans in our first, in our first purchase. And, you know, in the first year we bought 150 loans and, you know, pretty soon we were buying, uh, you know, over the years, thousands of loans. I think the last fund was over 2,500 loans. Uh, so certainly somebody could buy it and, and just buy a few loans here and there. Uh, but we'd also love to, you know, somebody's focus on getting big, you know, we'd like to uh, get big with them. Yeah. That's fantastic. So one last thing uh, before I, I got to ask you about, George, what is debt cleanse? Uh, so that's a new, so I've, uh, the, uh, it's made it a lot easier for me to uh, let go of control of AHP by putting my mind under another business. So I did start another business, which is called Debt Cleanse Group Legal Services. And what this is, is a, na- a national nationwide uh, legal plan, which helps consumers and small businesses um, get out of debt. Interesting. And without filing bankruptcy, so that's what we're doing. So, what do you what do you usually do? Are you just helping to negotiate down debt and everything? Uh, we're so we built a. I'd written a book when I you know when I, before I started HP, I had some I had a some challenges with my prior business, which resulted in me being uh, significantly in debt. And I learned how to you know I used some of the lessons from that experience um, as we developed the strategies for HP. Uh, but here, a lot of families say, hey, I'd like to, you know, can HP buy my loan? For instance, you know, we may help somebody and they tell their friends and family and the friends and family are now calling HP, you know, can you buy my loan? And, and we can't call City or Wells and say, hey, you know, sell us, sell us Buck's loan, uh, for instance. Yeah. And it just doesn't work like that. But now if, if Buck or somebody that you knew was struggling with their mortgage, we could give you um, some, we could share strategies uh, that would help you. Uh, get a good deal from your uh, servicer or lender. And if they didn't give you a good deal, then we'd, we'd uh, provide you access to an attorney in your state who could um, who could assist you. So is this primarily in the real estate space again, or is this, could this be any, any business, tr- uh, business or individual dealing with the debt issues? Any type of debt issue, student loans, business loans, payday loans, credit cards, mortgages, any type of debt. And, and what we've done is we've trained a nationwide network or in process of training a nationwide network of attorneys. 
And so they can represent them. And, and each member, here's the business model. Each member pays $29 a month uh, to, the, to the plan. And in return, they get access to some technology tools. They also get 30 minutes one-on-one uh, -on -one phone consultation with an attorney in their state. And if they decide to hire that attorney, let's say to sue a lender or defend a suit from a lender or even write a letter or something like that, they get a 25% discount off that attorney's regular rates. Interesting. So basically, you're giving some guidance and ultimately connecting with attorneys. It's a referral service as well as, you know, just some basic tools. Fantastic. And that's uh, up and running? No, it should launch in the next, it uh, should launch the first couple of days of December. Got it. And it's debtcleanse.com? What, what that's, it? that's it. You got it. <laughs> that's awesome. I love it. You're a man after my own heart, George. It's great. Um <laughs> Anyway, listen, guys. If, if there's uh, the the website uh, is is different now, so just to prevent confusion in terms of the uh, uh, the offering from uh, from AHP Servicing, it's AHPServicing.com now. So make sure you make that uh, change. I'm sure they will also probably do a redirect or some kind of note if you go to the old site, which we've talked about in the past. Um, also, um, we have George's book up. Uh, it should be up there in the resources section. We changed our website. So it's a book called Burn Zones. It talks about George's um, – he's a very good writer too. It is a great story about sort of his start in the world of uh, uh, multifamily real estate and how, you know, you sort of the – the highs and the lows of, of what that was all about. So for people who are interested in real estate, if you go to wealthformula.com, you can get a uh, sign up, and George will send you a real copy of that book to your doorstep as opposed to me who just has free downloads because I'm, I'm cheaper than George for sure. <laughs> <laughs> George and Deanne, thank you so much for being on Wealth Formula Podcast today. Thank you. Thanks, Buck. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the show, everyone. Uh, this, again, is Buck Joffrey with the Wealth Formula Podcast. Now, uh, I mentioned at the beginning of the show that we did this documentary. Um, we, we talked about that a little bit. I'm going to make that available to everyone at no cost once we get it out. Um, and I think that'll give you a very good sense of the note business um, and help you to decide whether or not you want to go down that rabbit hole. If not, it's a great place to potentially still have exposure um, and AHP is a great vehicle for that, especially considering the liquidity. I think that is a huge, huge uh, plus and something that really other funds don't really offer, which I think is a, a real coup. Um, I should point out that, uh, as I've said before, and I, I, I was an investor previously in AHP, and I almost certainly will be again. Uh, I'm not, um, you know, I'm, I'm not in the second fund quite yet, but I'm almost certain to do so. So I will tell you that, um, that as well. Uh, I try to try to tell you when I am invested in something now. Um, I should also point out that George was, um, part of my course, uh, which you can check out again at wealthformularoadmap.com. And again, when you get, get the course, you're actually joining our community with biweekly mastermind calls, a private community, exclusive content, and if that's of interest to you, make sure you go to wealthformularoadmap.com. And finally, I'd like to request something from you. You know, you got a lot of listeners, you got a lot of folks out there who I know love the show. 
show your love. Go to wealthformula.com. Click on the link that will easily uh, guide you to give us a five-star review on iTunes. And why? Because it helps keeps our rankings, our ratings up, right? This is really, really important. Um, you know, we're, we're still a top investing podcast. And in the past year, we've had names like, as you know, Robert Kiyosaki, uh, we had Grant Cardone, Dean Graziosi, we've had Jim Rickards. We've had, you know, we've just had a, a, a lot of great people on, a lot of New York Times bestsellers. And um, uh, I could go on and on, and I'm not leaving anybody out. I'm not just telling you the best people. I'm telling you this is a high-quality, high-caliber group of people that's very difficult to get unless you have the gravitas of a, a top podcast, which we have become. And your subscriptions to the show, uh, passing the word, giving more and more people, you know, the um, the information they need by, you know, spreading the word on the podcast and by giving us a five-star review helps us to maintain that standing. So anyway, if you want to help out, definitely go and check that out. Do that at wealthformula.com. That's it for me this week. This is Buck Joffrey with the Wealth Formula Podcast. Thank you for listening to the Wealth Formula Podcast. Visit us on the web at wealthformula.com. The information contained in this podcast are opinions, not fact. As always, consult your own financial team before making any investment. See you next time. Buck Joffrey here from Save You with Buck Joffrey. Aging might become reversible over the next 10 to 20 years. It's already being done in lab animals, so it's just a matter of time. Our challenge? To be healthy enough for when that time comes. As a former scientist and surgeon myself, my goal is to figure out how to do that and to share it with you. I wrote a book called Living Longer for Busy People that you can download for free at sapiopodcast.com. You'll be amazed at just how a few daily adjustments can add years of a healthy life for you. Again, download it for free, sapiopodcast.com.